if we even put half as much mechanization into plant-based meat production as we have into animal meat production, you know, we would go farther, faster, replace meat on a large scale. And so that was the philosophy behind starting Seattle Food Tech and then later Rebellious Foods came to be. You're listening to What Fuels You, where we deep dive with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to learn more about their stories and uncover nuggets of wisdom we can all use. I'm your host, Shauna Swirland, CEO of Fuel Talent, an award-winning recruiting firm based in Seattle. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Christy Legali. Christy is the founder and CEO of Rebellious Foods, a food production technology company working to make plant-based meat price competitive with animal-based meat. Legali began her career in the aerospace industry, working on testing, designing, and manufacturing commercial airplanes at Boeing. Now at Rebellious, she focuses on designing novel manufacturing equipment that addresses the two most significant obstacles facing the plant-based meat industry, cost and quality at scale. Welcome, Christy. So good to see you. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, being being here with you. Yeah, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time from when I first met you, like, I think it was maybe last year at the GeekWire Awards. And um, your company is just so impressive. I loved preparing for the interview. And I'm going to hit you first with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite breed of dog? No breed. I love the mixed breeds. <laughs> you love the mixed breeds. Do you have a dog? I have two dogs. They are both mixed breeds. Um, the, I have a puggle mountain dog of some sort. And I always say the front half is puggle, uh, the, or the front half is beagle, and the, fa- the last half is puggle or pug, I guess. Oh, I love that. And then I have a whippet, some sort of whippet chihuahua I don't know, Greyhound Cross. <laughs> she runs really fast. She's very... She's what are very their names? Good. Leia is my uh, tall dog and uh, the Greyhoundish one. And then Barney is my uh, puggle, puggle cross of some sort. And they're Those both, are such cute names. They're both uh, 13 going on 14 years old. And they're, they're good oh, dogs. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm on, I'm on the uh, fence around getting a second dog because I feel like it'll keep my seven-year-old dog, like, young. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I think multiple dogs is a great idea if it's the right thing for you and your family. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so is there a book that you have read more than once or that you find yourself often recommending to others? Oh, yes. I am such a big fan of Jim Collins' Great by Choice. Um, Jim Collins, of course, is a, a world-renowned researcher into the effectiveness and impactfulness of businesses and how they made business um, change the world long term. So, you know, companies like General Mills or, you know, Southwest Airlines, things that transform the industry, usually for the better. Um, And he wrote a number of books, but uh, Great by Choice was probably my absolute favorite, but there were really good nuggets of wisdom throughout his series of of books and research on the, on building good businesses that make a difference. Okay. I, I um, earmarked that one. I just put a note to myself. I'm going to check it out. Great. Um, What is your favorite source of protein beside rebellious oh i am a tofu connoisseur (laughs) i love tofu the extra firm 
everything. I'll take anything and everything. It doesn't even have to be made out of soy. I love uh, garbanzo bean tofu, peat protein tofu um you can make tofu out of a lot of different things and there's there's like a whole uh kind of you, youtube genre videos that teaches you how to do that i i don't cook myself but um i love it when i do get a chance to buy other types of tofu from different protein sources yeah and is there some sort of app on your phone that you find yourself like i could never live without this app oh gosh app on my phone you know i just started i i would say i feel like now i couldn't live without it but i just started a getting i got this app called aura for um mental health mindfulness meditation you know um you know progressive relaxation and right now it is my absolute favorite app it's um is it like i use it every ring? day you know, I don't know. I think it's just a coincidence that they're named similarly, but it's an app that has everything from like mental health support to, um, you know, talks on talk therapy to, you know, just everything you can imagine when it comes to, you know, just listening for mental health purposes. So it even has stories yeah. so you can go to sleep by oh. things like that. It's really great. Is it A-U-R-A? That's right. A-U-R-A. Okay. Yeah, All right, another out. nugget from you. I appreciate yeah. <laughs> that. Um, do you have a hidden talent? Oh, goodness. Um, it's not very hidden, but it's definitely not very out there. As I, I'm a ballet dancer, and um, I have danced for, oh, gosh, 20, 28 years now. And um, it just, I don't know if it's a talent, but it is something that I, I am proud of. I just don't do it in public. <laughs> So I guess that's a are you doing talent. it act are you actively doing it now like in yeah. classes yeah I take classes oh, that's really once or twice cool. a week and um, there's there's a whole group here in Seattle you know of a community of people who do you know adult ballet on a pretty regular basis so you get to know pretty I much have everyone. to say <laughs> oh yeah I would imagine that you're in incredible shape I did ballet for a split second I mean several years but as a little girl and I just it's tiring it's like, tiring it, you have to yeah. be in you have to be in really good shape. It's hard. That's impressive. That's gotta, really impressive. You got to keep it up. You'll That's... stay lean. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, yeah. Is there um, a favorite music genre? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't have a favorite genre, but I'm a pretty big fan of Lizzo. I don't know. Somehow she just embodies what I feel in a day. And then I absolutely loved, you have to check out the Barbie album if you haven't already. If, yes. if you thought, if you love the Barbie movie, the Barbie album was even more fun. <laughs> so yeah, maybe not I a genre, it but it's definitely worth it. It's on Spotify. Okay, I'm putting that, I'm putting that down. And is there a dream place in your abundant spare time that you want to go visit? It's on your bucket list. Oh, yeah. You know, I've been wanting to get back to Hawaii. I've only been there once in my life. And that seems like a fairly simple thing to do from Seattle. Um, but I always seem to be kind of tied down by dogs. So um, I just want to get to Hawaii one of these days, hopefully this year. So yeah. um, I guess I have an amazing woman who um, takes care of my dogs if you ever need. Oh, that would be fantastic. Um, okay. The, the, well, my, my dog. I don't know why I said dogs. My dog. Um, but I've referred her to a few friends and so that's why I, I said dogs, girl. Yeah, she's yeah. great. Or Rover's awesome. I had them, um, I had the founder, um, well, great goddess men, um, on here and people have had a lot of success. So yeah. you need to get to Hawaii. That's your 2024 goal. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, cool. So tell me, um, 
you grew up in Golden, Colorado, I know. That's right. Uh, tell me more about that area and your upbringing with all sorts of animals. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Golden, Colorado with my mom and uh, my two sisters and my grandmother. And um, yeah, we had a couple of dogs, a couple of cats, a couple of rabbits at times. We had horses, which are which was a very common thing. Oftentimes people had horses, they either took care of other people's horses and um and so I I was around animals most of the time one way or the other and um you know and then there was at that time Golden Colorado was much more of an agricultural town than it is now having gone back at one point 20 years later after after you know when I was around I don't know 40 years or so I guess or in my late 30s and um and uh I found it to be such a modern place. I was so shocked um, because, you know, even when I left in, you know, left Colorado in like 1993, um, you know, they were still walking horses down the middle of the road. <laughs> so, oh, that's cool. So, I kind of think that would, that would be amazing to be raised like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was like maybe a crossover time in society where I, I did not mm -hmm. see that going back. It's much more of a modern yeah. place to live now. Um, but you know, and how old were you when you moved to California? How old were yeah, you? Yeah, I um I moved to California when I was seventeen. I actually went and lived with friends and um graduated from high school and went to college in California. And so um yeah, I actually graduated high school in California, but um but it was uh, but I left yeah Colorado at that time and I went to live in um East Bay of the Bay Area. <laughs> what what made you do that? Yeah, I mean it's kind of a little bit of a tough story. I, I, my, uh, my family was in a little bit of my family was actually in a kind of a big crisis. Um, my, my family was struggling with um, a couple of people's mental health issues, and um, honestly, just didn't really have a place to live anymore. And so um, I went and lived with friends for a while. Well, I went and lived with friends in California, and. Um, it was, it was kind of the best thing to do at that point. Uh, I took the dog <laughs> and because uh, I love animals at that point. So um, the best thing for us was just to kind of divide and conquer. And so I went and lived with friends and my, you know, a couple of my family members stayed home and my older sister had already left home. And so it was just the kind of necessity to, to kind of yeah. get some help from other people. When you think back on that time, were you um, just kind of in like survival mode or were you um, kind of young and ambitious? Oh, no, it was very much in survival mode. Um, to share a little bit more, my, my mother was struggling with mental health and had been for a very long time. And um, I, my younger sister was, you know, partially disabled. And so and then my older sister had already gone off to college. So I, I've more than anything else, it was survival mode, just trying to get everybody into a kind of a secure place. Um, and, you know, after, after that was kind of settled, <laughs> I, I decided to, to go live with friends. So, you know, I never thought about it as an ambitious question. It was definitely a brave one. I packed everything I had in a little car that I had at the time that was two door Mazda 323. <laughs> And uh, mm -hmm. drove drove it across, well, halfway across the country, and um, yeah, started started high school about a week later after that. So, yeah, interesting. I feel like you know, as a mom, and there's so many things out there right now about. I mean, it always have been about parenting and just kind of what you want for your kids. And I think like resilience 
And like what you showed through that is something that's really hard to teach. And I'm curious if you would attribute some of that pain to your drive and success. Like it's, it's a, sometimes when you hear these types of stories, it's a little bit like you are where you are in spite of <laughs> yeah. it all. It wasn't like, it wasn't likely to happen, right? Yeah. To just like, here you are a CEO of a company that's raised millions of dollars, you know, very visible. Mm -hmm. um, what do you owe that to? Or what, when you think about it, is it, does yeah. it feel like, of course I am, or does it feel like, <laughs> like what do you, it doesn't feel like say? an, of course I am. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. It, it feels like, well, so, I mean, I feel like I learned self-sufficiency from a very young age. Both my parents struggled with very, very serious mental health issues. And, um, and I, I, most of my growing up was taking care of other family members, even, even as a very young child. And so, um, you know, I did that till, till I basically couldn't anymore. And, um, but in terms of like taking care of myself, I just learned self-sufficiency from a very, very young age. Um, you know, sometimes I think, okay, well, maybe that's why I would succeed in a startup and, you know, I guess time will tell, but, um, the, it definitely, it definitely sets you up for, well, you know, you can try big things and if you fail, you only have yourself to blame, <laughs> you know, and, um, but I don't know if it necessarily was what motivated me to like start a company. I actually really wanted to go work for a company that felt like I was using my skills to make an impact in the world. And um, I had, you know, I, I ended up going to school to become first in psychology and then later in mechanical engineering. And that, that really set me up for like, I, all of those things I was doing because I wanted to be contribute positively to the world. I don't know why. I just, <laughs> I felt like That's that was my were. goal. It yeah. was just my goal in life. And, mm -hmm. um, and also I just saw so much suffering around me. I really wanted to do something about it. Um, I also feel like I, I, I kind of owe the world the, uh, the benefit of, of being a good citizen and being a contributor to the positive state of the world in part, because I actually feel really lucky. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in health and in a lot of ways, I'm actually pretty lucky overall in family. I, I know that there were many people that I lived on either sides of me in Colorado and other parts of times in my life that had it much, much, much worse. And, um, you know, that that's a really painful thing to see kind of on either side of your your life, whether they be, you know, kids being abused by their parents or animals being abused by their owners or things like that. You know, all of these things stuck deeply in me to want to do something about it. And I, I think that's that's one of the, the hardest learnings in life is that a lot of people don't realize that it actually helps the pain that we feel around these issues to actually do something about it, you know. Sometimes, oh, 100 percent. You know, give you it, a sense of a sense of purpose for sure. A sense of purpose uh, and in a lot of ways, sense of even a little bit of control, um, even when I'm feeling like, oh, my God, I don't know how to help this particular issue. Even donating makes a big difference. It like, puts me in a place mm -hmm. where I'm like, OK, at least I'm doing something right. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say um you know, I wanted, I also wanted to be able to grow and make a bigger impact, which is why, I, you know, really got learning about the books of Jim, Jim Collins and other companies that have, you know, changed the world in some way. 
because um, there are a lot of big problems out there. And the more you become aware of them, the bigger you realize they are, and the more it's harder yeah. to feel like you're actually going to be able to do something about it. And of course, you know, you may not be able to do, a, you know, about anything about most things, but that doesn't really negate our, our um, perhaps our moral conscience around doing something. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. contributing wow. to a positive good. 100%. And so you as a student transitioning, whole new school, new environment without your family, living with friends, mm -hmm. were you, um, I think I'm like rebellious. Did you ever rebel or were you? I did not. Um, there was no one like to Like your role and, oh. right. But sometimes it's, you know, in a family dynamic there, everyone has their role. And it sounds like you kind of took over as like the, the, like mama bear of the whole place at kind of keeping everybody, <laughs> keeping all the wheels in motion, which oftentimes can serve really well as a CEO because mm -hmm. you're so used to, um, you know, surprises and not knowing necessarily what's around the corner and just doing like constantly um, making sure that everyone has what they need. Mm -hmm. I think that it can lead to really good um, kind of traits to show up as with, with your leadership style. Um, how did you decide to pursue Sonoma State? Well, Sonoma State University, I actually went to community college before I went to Sonoma State, so I wasn't there very long. Um, it was only like two years or something like that. So, you know, I have, I have a lot of fond memories of going to the community college, being that I didn't have a family dynamic around me and I didn't have, you know, somebody to sign off on my my financial aid form or anything like that. Nobody could do that for me. So I went to community college first and I actually did really, really well there. That turned out to be a good idea. <laughs> um, I actually took everything from vocational classes to, you know, um, you know, academic classes. And then when I finished at the community college, I went on to Sonoma State. I still had a, a very only vague idea of maybe what I wanted to do in the world. And I ended up choosing psychology just because I found education and I still find education to be very unnatural. <laughs> um, I just, I don't, I don't read very well. And I, I've always had kind of a disability around reading and, um, and I, I don't sit in classes all that well. <laughs> And so I, you're like a very typical CEO. I, I guess so. you're like that's like the quintessential like textbook Maybe. entrepreneur. That's I didn't so I didn't know that I didn't know that. But oh yeah, very I, typical. I chose psychology because I could graduate with psychology, and yeah, I wasn't even that into psychology. I was like, well, I mean, I learned a lot of this when I was you know managing my mother through the mental health care system, but um, yes. But I, uh, I found organizational psychology, like business psychology, how businesses work better. And I ended up like kind of majoring officially in that. And yeah. even that I was like, okay, that was fun, but I don't know what to do with it now. So as soon as I got out of college the first time, I almost immediately went back to the community college, got all my prerequisites over the years in night school before I could go back and finish my engineering degree. So yeah. I, I got that psychology you, degree first. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to like, you know, be when you grew up and how did you, did you pursue a career like right away? Um, I did not have a really good sense. In fact, I felt very lost, um, you know, about where I wanted to go, but I did, I was a really big fan of Star Trek and um, both from a moral perspective, again, you know, that kind of belief in what is the right thing to do and Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry very much had this 
um, had this vision of our future where we could all be functioning and contributing and positive members of society. Um, you know, it also had that that underlying, uh, you know, story of we don't eat animals anymore. We replicate it. And, you know, yeah. so we didn't even have to kill animals in the Star Trek world. And I think probably one of the people who's influenced me the most was LeVar Burton's character, um, Jordy LaForge, because he was the engineer and the one that, you know, fixed the ship every time it, you know, got out of whack. And um, he was, I, I loved that. I thought that was like so much fun. And I I was always a little bit of a tinkerer and an inventor. And I think there were times when I did want to be an inventor, it, you know, it kind of came and went. Um, but there just wasn't a whole lot of like inspiration of that in, in my early life. So yeah, once, once, and that would have been, you know, in the latter half of my high school career when Star Trek The Next Generation was on television. So when I saw that and then, you know, as I got through college, which would have been the latter half of the season or the series, you know, I was like, oh, man, this this is what I should be doing. I need to be so a you went starship. Back to school. <laughs> yeah, I went yeah. back to school. And, you know, I didn't didn't have to be like just, you know, obviously I couldn't be a starship engineer, but, you know, I thought maybe I would work for NASA. I thought maybe I could. Um, I did not want to be an astronaut. I had no need to send me into space. I'm sure I would just fall apart. But um, but I but, but an I, aerospace I, engineer. Yeah, but an aerospace engineer. So I became an aerospace engineer and I got to work on. I got to work on spacecraft and aircraft. I even worked briefly on the James Webb Space Telescope in the very early years, not in the later years. Um, I uh, I got to work on the Boeing 777, the 787, the um, 777X. So I got to work on a lot of really fun projects um, in aerospace. All the while- How did you get that? How did you get that, those jobs? Who hooked you up or like, did you just apply uh, cold just... or did you- Network? How did that work? You know, I just applied for those jobs at, at Boeing. That's I don't amazing. remember. I just remember going through the regular process, the application. They call you in and have an interview. That was all. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember things happening like that. Yeah. So that was yeah. good. So, so a serious career as an aerospace engineer. Yeah. Um, all the while, I know you said before we started recording that you've been a vegan for 29 years. What, mm. what made you decide to give up animal products. Yeah, I mean, I remember being about 14, 15 years old and learning about the dog meat trade in um in Korea, which is just, you know, obviously horrific. Factory farming in general is horrific for animals for sure. And I was just appalled. At that point I was just like, how could we eat dogs here as my friend, you know? I'm not going to eat a dog. And then, you know, it didn't take me very long to rationalize that maybe eating animals was was a morally questionable, you know, thing that there's a reason people question it. There's a reason it comes up in, you know, almost every major religion. And um, so it, it was it was it was my love of animals and my acceptance that they were whole beings that I really didn't want to eat animals. So um, so I was a vegetarian until I was about 19. And then, um, you know, approximately or so, and I, um, well, when I was 17, I definitely became a vegetarian. And then when I was 19, I, I wrote a paper in for, at the community college for a health class, and it was supposed to be about vegetarianism. And so I researched vegetarianism because I was just doing it because I didn't want to eat my friends. And, um, and they, and when I researched it, I was like, oh, 
there's a real argument for veganism here, right? And I ended up writing it on the health impacts of veganism. And this would have been 1995. Um, Wow. So at that point, I just became a vegan. Well, the crazy thing was, um, it was September of... 1995 and it was like the first paper I was supposed to write so it was like it's class started in August by September I was had finished this paper and um I had always had severe respiratory and stomach issues my whole life starting from about fourth grade onward I didn't know what it was no one my family were not they did not see doctors they did not believe in seeing doctors so I'd never been to a doctor and um, and so I never, you know, complained about my health issues. And so um, I'll never forget on Monday, I went vegan and I never ate meat, dairy or eggs again. Dairy and eggs was really what it was. And I actually I actually seemed to not be able to digest eggs. So I was really just dairy. And by Friday, I had never had a respiratory or stomach issue again. <laughs> So I wow. was actually severely allergic to dairy and and actually later realized I was severely allergic to eggs too. And um and both both allergic and and uh what do you call it lactose intolerant which so um yeah it just didn't agree with me. So I always say I'm like the poorest person to ask about how to go vegan because it was so easy for me. I was like, "Thank God." <laughs> Yeah, you're Thank like, God, that's over. Incredible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you feel amazing. Yeah, yeah I felt it, it was it was like enlightenment. It I never felt so good in my life. And at that point, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. I was under 100 pounds. But after I became vegan, I finally hit, you know, maybe 105, 19, 110, maybe, I think. So and I stayed at like 110 until it was latter part of my 30s. But it was just... um that was just how poor I was actually digesting food. It wasn't until after that eating, going vegan that I could actually gain weight. So, um, so anyway, for me, it was, you know, there are helping, you know, benefits for many, many reasons, but you know, now, now that we know so much more about the benefits of eating a, you know, good balanced vegan diet, um, of which I may or may not eat, um, you know, I eat vegan, but I'm not sure how balanced it is sometimes. Yeah. But how cool that you created a whole business around it. So tell me about the idea for Rebellious Foods. Where did the idea come from and the name? I love the name. Yeah, thanks. So I actually started the company as Seattle Food Tech, and that is actually still our corporate name. Um, Rebellious Foods was added later. But um, I started Seattle Food Tech in 2017 um, based on this idea that I could see there was a really big gap in the... Um, production of meat alternatives. So if people wanted to eat less meat, um, one way to do that is to eat a meat lookalike, you know, either tofu or a plant-based nugget or, you know, a, a faux hamburger of some sort. And as those products become better and better over the years and decades since I became vegan and vegetarian, um, what has not happened is the price has not come down and the, and the quality sometimes was you know, variable and the volume was just not there. Like people often just couldn't afford it. You certainly couldn't drive into a a truck stop in the middle of Nevada and find a veggie burger. So um, I really looked at this from an engineer's perspective and and at Boeing Commercial Airplanes, I actually worked on manufacturing technology where I was developing automated tools for the um, assembly of the aircraft wing. 
And I really learned a lot about manufacturing technology and the benefits it has for lowering the price of a product, um, in that case, the wing, uh, the wing structure, um, but keeping the, but improving the quality at the same time. So those fundamentals of high quality, lower cost, safer operations, safer labor, um, were all the philosophies around manufacturing technology. And so, you know, once I started to think, okay, well, I've had this career in aerospace, I want to go do something different. Um, how can I take that theory forward? And manufacturing technology plus the, you know, plant-based meat industry, well, they were almost match made in heaven because, um, you know, we've been industrializing meat production um, to the point of the fact that, you know, we produce, over, we kill over 60 billion animals on this planet every single year. And the reason we can do that with only 7 billion people, by the way, or almost 8 billion people is because of automation and mechanization, manufacturing technology. And so I was like, well, if we even put half as much mechanization into plant-based meat production as we have into animal meat production, you know, we would go farther, faster, replace meat on a large scale. And so that was the philosophy behind starting Seattle Food Tech. And Seattle Food Tech, you know, eventually we we got some traction, you know, some funding for that. And we decided we needed to be a direct producer of high quality plant-based chicken products and specifically do so for the public school system. Um, I met a couple of people at the, at the Humane Society of the United States, where I also volunteered when I still worked at Boeing. Um, so Josh Balk and Christy Middleton were you know, um, people that I met at, at the Humane Society, and they're like, somebody needs to make a plant-based chicken company that has low cost and high volume can conserve the public school system. And so, you know, I started putting one half of my brain to, together and the other half, and that, that was where Seattle Food Tech and then later Rebellious Foods came to be. <laughs> That's amazing. And so when you said that you got some funding, how did you initially fund the business? I mean, even just setting up the business and hiring your first who was your first hire? Yeah, our first hire is actually you know, an employee. Yeah, her name was, my first hire was um, a woman named Brenna Taylor, and she actually still is with the company. She's our senior supply chain and logistics manager. We've had great retention in our company, and um, and, and Brenna is a, a good example of that. Um, and she's also just done so much to build the company. But I, I, I mean, setting up the company is a matter of just filling out some paperwork. We incorporated as a C Corp and incorporated in Delaware. And then you're like, OK, what do we do now? And, you know, it was a matter of just taking one step in front of the other, trying to figure out, OK, what should we research? How do we research it? Where do we research it? Make product, figuring out how that goes together. It was very much one step in front of the other until things build on each other and then you know, there are no, you know, big flight steps um, or, you know, big miracles. <laughs> I've, I've never seen a miracle yeah. in six and a half years, um, but it's really just building on each step and each day. Um, but being a producer and a technology developer was probably the hardest thing we could have done. And it was also the best thing we could have done. Like, I, yeah. I, I, I hesitate to even say that because it was so painful. <laughs> But but knowing what you're doing makes such a big difference. And so, right. you know, it's it's very tempting to just want to isolate the problem into like, oh, I can fix this one little problem. Or if I had an app, we could just fix this one little problem. Well, we weren't working on a little problem. We were working on industrializing plant-based meat production so it hit price parity so we could feed a public school system, you know. And... um you know, that's when I, I've learned over the years that certainly 
those those hard steps forward are not going to be um they're not going to be fun all the time <laughs> and yeah I, I have to tell you this one story um when i was at boeing um there's a there's a test pilot at boeing her name is christine walsh and she started out as an engineer and wanted to be a she wanted to be a captain a, a test pilot and um she spoke at boeing and one of the things that she did to work her way up to various different roles to go from an engineer to a test pilot, which is a big jump, by the way, um, is to just take all of these, whatever jobs she had to do to do that. And that was really the approach I had to take. You know, the advice was do the job no one else wants to do. And every step of the way, I would say we have done the job that no one else wants to do. You know, not, yeah. a lot of people say they don't want to do production. Well, I don't blame them. It is hard. And a lot of people say that, well, I don't want to do like hardware work. I've had an engineer or, you know, entrepreneurs say that. And I was like, well, that's true. You, you could also work in the software arena, but hardware is as hard as it sounds. Um, so yes. we had to work in food. We worked in hardware. You know, the, the problems we're solving, oftentimes we have to say, look, you know, we're not tunneling neutrinos here and we're not, you know, we're not changing things massively. But when you're dealing with hardware and real world changes, you have to kind of go in smaller steps, but you make a huge impact in the end because otherwise it, it's it's. It's very, very hard to move a physical industry in a different direction, um, yes. unlike software, where you can make a really big difference just by diverting users from one platform to another. A hundred percent. So back to there were two questions I wanted to come back to because I didn't get um, how did you come up with the name Rebellious? Oh, Rebellious. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then also the funding, like that initial funding, yes. I guess your seed round. Yeah. Um, um, how did you how did you get? Um, you know, I guess basically tell me a little bit about that fundraising process because to date, I know you've raised 30 million. Is that that's right? right? Yeah, that's right. And so I'm, I'm super curious, like what are the factors that have attracted investors to you? Yeah. I mean, when I first started raising and I'll answer the, the fundraising first, because that's chronologically before uh, rebellious foods. But when I first started fundraising, it was about around manufacturing technology for plant-based meat production. And so um, basically I just started pitching and I was very unsuccessful for quite a long time. And then every once in a while you'd find somebody who were like, okay, I actually get what you're doing because of course most people have never been in a factory. And um, so that was a really hard issue around Seattle food tech was was like, so what are you going to do? But, you know, hardware for production of plant based meat was was definitely a hard concept. But you know what? The trick to fundraising, especially if trick to fundraising, a hard concept is to do it over and over and over again and take feedback every single time. So, I mean, I have a database of, you know, 600 to maybe 800 meetings. And I'm not talking emails. I'm talking meetings where I have pitched over six and a half years. So um, it, it, it adds up. I mean, after you've done 10, 12, 20, 40, 60, 80 in three months, over six years, you do end up doing it a lot. And just taking that feedback each and every time, refining your business model, having the right answer at the right time, making sure you have a good business model that makes sense, um, all of those things. And then taking the small checks when you get them and getting started is another really good way of doing it. And then it kind of builds on itself as you're more and more successful. Yeah. 
And then the name Rebellious Foods, <laughs> I'll just start over. The, main, the name Rebellious Foods actually comes from where it should come from. It was a really good marketing firm. <laughs> So we love, I love the it name. because, we yeah, because I see the belly, I saw the belly in it and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Like, especially with you, when you were saying like you healed your belly from Monday to a Friday, you're like, I'm all better. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. very true. Yeah. Um, I love that. And tell me about the business model. You, you mentioned like have a good business model. What is your business model? And I want to get into kind of the vision, the mission, all of that. Sure. So um, Rebellious Foods and our, our corporate name, Seattle Food Tech, exists to make plant-based meat available and affordable for everyone. So we do that by designing and deploying automated food processing equipment that we custom built ourselves. Essentially, we went back to first principles of engineering and we designed the right equipment for the job. So almost all plant-based meat today, even today, is made in off-the-shelf meat processing equipment in meat processing facilities. So almost all your bread, veggie burgers and chicken nuggets are being made you know, right next door to a line that's also processing animal meat. But honestly, if you can imagine how you deconstruct a chicken into a nugget, it is very different than how you take proteins from a plant and turn them into a plant-based chicken nugget. And so we decided we needed to go back to the drawing board and design the right equipment for the job. And that's what we've been doing for six years. We designed a system that is uh, was first called the Mach 1 and then the Mach 1S, and now we're deploying the Mach 2. And that system automates all the most laborious and difficult parts of turning that plant-based protein into a plant-based chicken nugget. <laughs> yeah, and so when you first started talking about it, you said um, food tech. And when I was prepping, I was like, okay, we got food tech, we got agri-tech. <laughs> Um, and I also know that you, in your, in your mind, it's also a climate tech company. Mm, yeah. Um, so at, at what point in your life, like, let's go back now, was it around the same time of, um, becoming a vegan? Did you become, um, like an environmentalist or like caring about the world and the climate? Yeah. And I would impact. I would say I became an environmentalist as a kid. Um, I remember issues of climate change being well on my mind as a seven, eight, nine year old. Um, so it was, I was always thinking recycling is what I had to do. So I was always trying to recycle and you know, drive less and things like that. Um, but as a climate tech company, you know, food tech is a very big, broad concept of trying to figure out how do we make food better um, climate tech is about understanding we need a lot of solutions to address the amount of CO2 and methane that are being emitted into the atmosphere that are forcing climate change. Right now, we have a lot of interesting solutions to address things like coal burning um, versus you know, solar opportunities to address that. But in the meat industry, um, you know, we produce, for example, 108 billion pounds of animal meat in the United States alone. Um, we, we kill over 9 billion animals in the U.S., 60 billion globally. Um, in fact, in the in whole world, annually, we, we produce over 771 billion pounds of animal meat. Um, of that, only less than about one half of 1% or even less, like it can be, be as much as two-tenths of 1% is accounts for plant-based meat. So we have a long way to go um, when it comes to how much meat we need to replace by either meat analogs or just people reducing their meat consumption. And so what we're working on at Rebellious Foods is taking that automated technology and making it a viable path forward for plant-based meat production 
in the existing meat processing facilities that we have today. So we strongly believe at Rebellious Foods that conversion of meat production towards plant-based meat production through better equipment is a path forward to address climate change. Because once you do that, then you have a cost parity product for consumers, better products for consumers, more available products for consumers. And consumers make a lot of choices, but one of their biggest beefs, no pun intended, um, well, pun intended, is that plant-based meat costs too much and there isn't enough of it. So that's the issue we're dealing with, but we have to deal with it on a production level first before consumers are gonna benefit. Mm -hmm. So um, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding, because in my mind, it's a product, and but we're talking about the manufacturing part. So mm -hmm. when you have customers, I know that you've got the schools, um, I wrote it down, I can't remember how many schools, but like crazy. You, I mean, your numbers are incredible. I don't know how many um, schools you are in, yeah. but it was, so, it was a crazy number. Yeah, um, we are in over 210 major school districts nationwide. And yeah. um, we reach almost three and a half million school kids. Um, there are over 16,400 school districts, so we've got a long way to go, but we do have quite a distribution at this point. So essentially, the way that you prove technology works is you actually use it. You do what you say you're going to do with it. And so it can be a little bit confusing, but Rebellious is a production and production technology company. On one side of the coin, we are developing the technology for manufacturing. And on the other side, we're using it to make products. And that is our business model to connect to the world. We sell those products to the USDA National School Lunch Program in school districts across the United States. And, and these are fairly simple products. They're just very well made because we'll, you know, we, we obviously care a lot about our recipe and our ingredients and things like that. Um, but by making them through using automated technology, we are, um, we're lowering the cost and making them much more available to, frankly, one of our, our most price sensitive markets, which is our public schools. Mm-hmm. And I also read that the plant-based that plant-based chicken is the second fastest growing category in the plant-based sector. Yeah. Um, how are you going to be positioning yourselves to like capitalize on this growth? And um, as somebody who, I mean, I pay attention, but not obviously. This is the world that you eat, breathe, and sleep. <laughs> um, what like what should we expect broadly in this sector in the plant-based meat industry? Yeah, so the plant-based meat industry, frankly, has tons of room to grow no matter what. Um, I, they, there's other issues that we need in order to make those ish, you know, things grow, and one of those is price parity with animal meat. So if you think about it, if we're only producing one-tenth of one percent of that 771 billion pounds of animal meat globally, your biggest competition is not other plant-based meat companies. Your biggest competition is animal meat. And so getting to price parity is absolutely critical, but you can't take quality down. You can't take taste down. It has to be the highest quality product you've ever tried, and you got to make sure that's available to the school district. And that's where production automation makes a difference. In fact, that's why chicken is cheap. So the, one of the growest, fast and growing segment of the plant-based meat industry is the chicken industry. Well, that's also because chicken is the fastest growing segment of the meat industry. So as people want more of these products, as more and more people eat more meat and meat continues to grow globally, um, despite the warnings around climate change and the emissions from this industry, you know, you're going to see that particular segment grow kind of in parallel. 
Yeah. But it sounds like you as a company are making huge strides towards price parity. Are there other companies like, are you kind of aligned with other people in this space to kind of work toward a common goal or is there like a lot of competition? There is like, are you working? Is there, is there a community that's like, Hey guys, these are our broad goals for like leaving our mark on humanity (laughs) or is it, we're going to be first and there's a lot of competition and it's kind of I have not run into a lot of competition around price parity. It's a it's a pretty tough thing to do. So um, most people are really just trying to get their company stable. And yeah. um, and you know there have been plant based meat companies that have definitely come and gone in in our own lifetime. And um, I would say you know mostly we're in competition with the animal meat industry. Um, mm. So I wouldn't say that there is a limited number of consumers that are limited by, okay, these are the people who eat plant-based meat. We all have to kind of vie for their, that, that's just not the way it is. You know, um, there is much more, I do feel like we have a good community of large and small companies that are willing to work together, collaborate, you know, cross-pollinate in some cases. Um, you know, one of my favorite cross-pollinations that I've ever seen is the Notco company working with Kraft Foods on a wide variety of product development to make them plant-based. So um, I think there's going to be a lot more of that in the future. And, um, you know, we, we've got bigger problems than just competition against another plant-based meat company. We've got to address climate change. We've got to address profitability and price parity. So um, there isn't a lot of point in being too competitive with another plant-based meat company, especially because yeah, there's plenty that makes of room. Sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, from a manufacturing standpoint, you mentioned Mach 1 and then Mach 2. Mm-hmm. What What is the difference between the two? And then also, yeah. can you talk to me a little bit about um, the patents on... Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we have an extensive patent portfolio that covers the Mach 1 and the Mach 2. And this is um, technology that hydrates um, what does, what's called emulsifies oils, waters, and starch, which is basically just the same as making salad dressing, and then does final mixing to create the plant-based meat dough, which is the meat inside of um, a chicken nugget or something like that. Um, so that technology, the Mach 1 was and still is our pilot scale system. It did about 150 pounds an hour. And then we scaled that up over time, figuring out how we could make it bigger and bigger. And then um, the Mach 2 is the commercial scale version of the Mach 1. The Mach 2 does 2,500 pounds an hour minimum. It can go up to about 3,750 pounds per hour. So that's you know 10 to 15 million pounds per year of plant-based chicken products. And so with those kinds of scales, you can imagine, you know, testing is a, is a big ordeal. <laughs> so, yeah. um, it, but that is, that is the solution we need, right? Like, you yeah. know, when it comes to industrial scale problems, you need industrial scale solutions. And that was our goal. It was not our goal to be a mom and pop chicken nugget company. It was our goal to be an industrial scale producer so that we could serve our favorite school district. So we could serve LA Unified and Austin School District and Memphis, Tennessee. You know, those school districts, you know, buy truckloads from us. And those are the schools that would not otherwise have plant-based meat if if it wasn't for being able to produce at large scale. And that's the goal of the Mach 2. That makes that makes sense. And when I went on your website, first of all, I love it. I think it's got great branding. Um, but I read some uh, metrics or statistics that I thought were crazy uh, impressive. So it says 90% reduction in production workforce costs through automation. 
Um, tell me if these are accurate because sometimes I'll tell people, they're like, uh-oh, we got to get that up to date. It's actually 93%. Um, 80% reduction in energy costs by eliminating the need for chilled environment. One third of the footprint on the production floor versus current production methods. Mm-hmm. One quarter reduction in sanitation staff, reducing labor costs. Um, 99% reduction in material waste through continuous production. 95% elimination of rework for work in progress with quality at scale breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Like everything was, is like, <laughs> wow. I was pretty impressed by that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, one of the things that has been an utter joy in being um, kind of the first company that did manufacturing technology for plant-based meat is I I hope one day we have like five companies that are competing with us for this. (laughs) But we definitely got the pleasure of like pulling the lowest fruit off the vine um, because it wasn't, it was really hard to invent the Mach 1 and the Mach 2. But it wasn't hard as like what the next thing we have to do is <laughs> because yeah. one thing that every plant-based meat company has wanted is to convert their batch processing to continuous processing. And that was like the bare minimum of what we did. So we took that one, we ran with it, we patented it, we patented it in multiple countries, and then we did everything else we needed to do from, you know, equipment level chilling to continuous hydration to everything that was like, okay, let's just fix all these problems that people would, you know, you know, when an operator would rather kill chickens and process chickens than do plant-based meat, that just gives you a chance, that gives you an idea of how hard it is to make plant-based meat for the operator. Um, yeah. they're just, it's so much easier and there's so many more tools to process chicken. We want to make it so the operator's like, you know what? Plant-based meat is much nicer to plant produce. Now we've got these automated pieces of equipment. I want to convert my facility into a plant-based meat facility. And that's that's the yeah. day we're looking for, is to be that industrial enabler. Yeah, that would be incredible. I have to say, you know, starting in 2017 and then three years later, we go into COVID. Um, you know, your first time CEO, you're getting recognized as a great leader and you're an innovator. Um, having done recruiting for 30 years, I can say that um, candidates more than ever during the last three years have been very, um, like there's, there's been a shift in their drivers, right? It's not always just, Hey, can you get me more money? And there's been a huge shift towards, um, working in an area that they're passionate about or where they can make a real impact or a lasting impact on like the world, whether it's the environment or an issue that they care deeply about. How has it been for you recruiting employees who, share your passion around plant-based foods and animal welfare and and the climate and all that. Do you make that kind of the number one criterion? Or is it like skill set first? And then by the way, this is also super cool if you are interested. So I would say um, it definitely has to be a balance. I mean, mission is what's required to stick with hard problems that make an impact. Um, And impact, you know, people want to feel like they're spending, you know, a good portion of their lives at work making an impact, you know, doing something better for the world, just like I did in my earlier days too. And and there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, But as climate change is bearing down on us, I think more and more people want to use that skill set to do something about it. You know, it's, again, we talked earlier about it, it, it can address your emotional trauma around things like climate change or animal welfare or human health. 
to actually do something about it, to spend your working hours, do something about it. So the value of, um, you know, mission is that you can stick with it through do hard, through hard things. And we have seen some very hard things because hardware is hard. <laughs> things break, things fall off trucks, <laughs> things explode. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy what can happen. And, um, you know, obviously safety is always first, but you have to power through some of those things. And I mission is what helps you get through those things. But the other side of mission is that satisfaction of impact, being able to wake up in the morning and feel like your existence is being used in a way that really will fulfill your soul to do something about the world's problems. So um, mission matters a lot. However, at the same time, yeah. it's not always the right fit. Maybe animal rescue is the right way to go. Maybe being a climate change campaigner is the right way. Um, so I always say, gosh, if you want to be in a startup, it's more than just mission because it also, you got to have some serious grit. <laughs> um, serious grit. What makes grit. somebody <laughs> successful at Rebellious? Like, are there traits that are like, hey, we've seen a common thread among our, you know, very successful employees? Yeah, I would just say mostly that that grit plus the mission. When you put those together, it it usually works out really, really well. And um, and I think I think that you know we we have this opportunity to kind of come together and work together for long term as well. Rebellious is a very stable company, and you know we've got a good solid future ahead of us. So I think when um, startups come with a lot of risk, but we're hoping to, you know, make sure that people who have, who bring that mission and grit, you know, can also feel like they have a long future with us. Yeah. And what are the long-term plans for Rebellious Foods? Are there new products you can talk about or yeah. any sort of expansion plans in the pipeline? I don't think I'm allowed to talk about new products yet, but we do have some new products coming. Um, and mostly we're going to be deploying them in the school lunch program. So unless you're in the fifth grade, you probably won't get to try them. Um, but um, we are going to be deploying the Mach 2 production system. We are going to be you know, bringing um, our costs even more in line with what the school districts need. Um, and we will be expanding, hopefully building a Mach 3, maybe even a Mach 4 production system to really expand out the impact we can make with our technology. Um, so what that means is that if you're an engineer and you love to invent things and you love to create things and you love to deploy and get real world work done, Rebellious is a hard boots on the ground or hardcore boots on the ground opportunity to really move the needle on, on making an impact. And there's no doubt, you know, we run a, a real life facility every single day and we do research every single day. So, um, it's, a uh, it, it's tough, but it's also tough for that, that feel good kind of tough, you know, that yeah. um, I'm, ex I'm good. super excited to watch you, Christy, like continue to build this. It's such a cool company. But separately, we started talking about um, Aura and the app and how you kind of might use it to um, preserve your mental health. What what do you do? Like, what's your go to to unwind or to just be like, I got to check out because I can't, you can't be 24 seven trying to solve this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love taking my dogs for a walk. We do a lot of hiking. Um, and I, 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 I love doing that. Uh, even in the rain, they, I have gotten a lot of little raincoats for them. <laughs> oh, you have yeah. to tell me because I ordered one for my dog and it ripped. So the company was really cool. They sent me a new one and then yesterday it ripped again. Oh, no. I'll send you a picture so you oh, can see man. that. I've got I, some... I, 
but one. I need a good coat for my dog okay. because I always talk myself out of taking her out in the rain. So yeah, send it to me. I have a tip for you. Goodwill. Yes. <laughs> Try, oh, yeah. Try Goodwill. You might find there are a lot of doggy raincoats at Goodwill, and you can just oh. like, buy them for a dollar and just see which ones work. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Awesome. I, I've bought a lot of doggy raincoats at Goodwill um, and okay. a lot of doggy done sweaters and, and stuff like that. So, Great. Um, so, but what was your question? I'm sorry. It was like, so oh, what I, I was just asking you about unwinding. So, you go for a hike and you wear the dog coat and you're going to go in the rain. <laughs> And then yeah. what about um, when you're thinking about, you know, it's Sunday, you're thinking about your week ahead. Yeah. How do you kind of get your mind around setting mm -hmm. yourself up for success and productivity? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I always do yoga on Sunday, if not almost every day. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, Sunday, I always make sure I do that. Um, and then actually, I try to always work like eight hours ahead of my team. <laughs> this is kind of like a CEO trick. So I every Sunday night, I sit down and... Um, either we, we have this thing called the Sunday night email that everybody gets a little update on the company where things at and, you know, reminds them where we're at, um, tells, celebrates all of our successes from the week before and the week to come. Um, sometimes I send that out. Sometimes my chief of staff sends it out. Um, and then I just work to really have that thought leadership forward um, to really make sure that we're hearing you know, seeing where we're going to be going in the future, because it's a startup, right? Like we have to constantly pick every single day how we are going to move forward. And that's what makes it exciting. Um, that's what makes it like a non-traditional kind of job. Um, but it, it also means that we got to think about it a lot. <laughs> so oh, yeah, that's what I, sure. I usually spend my Sunday nights doing that. <laughs> yeah. And so my ultimate question for you is what fuels you? Oh, what fuels me? Mission fuels me more than anything else. Um, you know, I I took a like a survey of my CEO like health or whatever it was called, and um, at a at a retreat recently, and we had to fill out forms about like, are you sleeping enough, and are you eating enough, and are you getting enough exercise? And I was kind of moderate on some of them. But when I was filling out the portion about, um, do you feel like your life has meaning? Do you feel like, um, you know, you get up in the morning and you're motivated by what you want to go do? This fulfills you. Um, that that I remember just checking five on on all the boxes. Oh, and that's just being, awesome. Feeling like, okay, this one this one's definitely got settled. So I I am fueled by the mission, and I am fueled by um, my commitment to. See if there's a better way forward and make a better way forward. Build the change we want to see in the world, um, as we say yeah. at Rebellious. Not just be the change, but build the change we want to see in the world. And so um, that that is what fuels me, is, is, is getting to do this and getting to do it with all the amazing people at Rebellious. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. If you'd like to check out past episodes to hear from more business leaders, go to fueltalent.com backslash podcast. And if you have a minute, please leave a review and rating on your favorite podcast app or share this episode with a friend or colleague. Please share any feedback or interview suggestions for other guests by sending a message to podcast at fueltalent.com. I'm Shauna Swirland, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.